I love these books uh, of the Old Testament, and especially I find uh, the ones that uh, interest me and have taught me very much, for some strange reason, I've not been able quite to put my finger on the reason why, are the books that are written about women. Maybe it's because I live with six women. And I get lonesome away from home. I don't know just what it is. But the books of Ruth, Esther, and the Song of Solomon have taught me probably more about Christian living than any other books in the Bible. And I'm always delighted for an opportunity to speak about them. I think this would be a good night to ask you how many have read the book of Ruth today. Would you raise your hand? Oh, that's much better. Aren't you glad I didn't ask you about Deuteronomy? <laughs> Four chapters in Ruth, that's all. But what a, what a delightful book. Perhaps many of you remember the story of uh, Benjamin Franklin when he was the ambassador of the United States to France, was a member for a time of a infidels club in uh, France that is not a member. He attended it from time to time. And uh, they spent most of their time reading literary masterpieces and searching for literary masterpieces. And on one occasion, he took the book of Ruth and he changed the names in it so it wouldn't be recognizable as a Bible book. And he read this book to the, uh, to the club when it was gathered together. And when he finished, they were unanimous in praise of this book. They said it was one of the most beautiful short stories they'd ever heard. And they demanded that he tell them where he'd run across such a remarkable uh, literary masterpiece. And it was his uh, great delight to tell them that it was from the Bible that they professed to, be, to regard with such scorn and derision and felt that there was nothing good could come from it. Now, the book of Ruth is a, is a literary masterpiece. It's a beautiful story, story of a romance. I don't know what the, how they would feature this in some of our romance magazines today. I can almost see the headlines uh, advertising this in a magazine like True Romance. It would be something like how one woman found happiness in the arms of a second husband, something like that. But uh, it is a... It's a book that uh, inflames the imagination when you read it through, because entwined all through it is the story of love and romance, and this is always a captivating theme. But though it is a beautiful story in itself, as a literary masterpiece, it's the story behind the story that is the fascinating thing about the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a charming story, but... What that story means and signifies is simply fascinating. And I hope you learn to read your Old Testament from that point of view, of looking for the story behind the story. For this is another one of those beautiful pictures that is a visual aid designed by God himself to illustrate the dramatic truths of the Christian faith. All the New Testament truths are lived out for us in blood and flesh, in these Old Testament characters. And this is certainly true of the book of Ruth. 
It's a story of the romance of redemption. And it, the four chapters of this book trace for us in a rather rough fashion, but uh, in, in, in rough division at least, the four major steps of the, of the work of redemption. Uh, it begins with an introduction to the characters of the book in the first five verses. We read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem named in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was bereft of her two sons and her husband. Now, in those five short verses, we're introduced to a, a series of, of personalities. And we'll discover that these persons are the key to this book. And the key to the persons are their names. So that we need to know the names of these individuals. Uh, this is one of the clues to making the Old Testament a living book, is to learn to look up the meaning of the names of the characters that are featured in prominent places in the Old Testament story. For God has hidden away great truths in these Bible names. Now, it begins with a man whose name was Elimelech. And Elimelech means, my God is king. And in that name you have comprehended in one short word the whole doctrine of man. My God is king. It begins with God, just as the Bible begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, it's, a, it's the God who is, the God who exists. Remember that the Bible never argues the existence of God. From beginning to end, you will never find any apologetic uh, dissertations on whether God exists or does not exist. The Bible starts with the fact of God. You can't go back at that. All the arguments as to the existence of God are mere philosophical speculations. They never will get you anywhere. The existence of God is a, is a matter that rests wholly upon the innate revelation of the human heart. Man either admits that God exists or he denies it, one or the other. He is built to recognize the existence of God. If he doesn't recognize that, there's no hope for him. Because as Hebrews 11.6 tells us, if anyone would draw near to God, he must believe that God is. God is. That's the beginning. He must believe that God is. And it isn't difficult to believe that God is. Light from God is streaming into us all around. What is difficult is to believe that God isn't. And it's only those who are educated beyond their intelligence who ever arrive at that point, where they finally talk themselves into believing that God isn't. But 
the whole story of man begins with that great fact, God is. But it's more than that. It's the God who is, is my God. My God is king. And that means that the God who is, is available to me as a man. That the God who exists and made the world, the creator of the universe, has made himself completely available unto man. And that's why that verse in Hebrews 11, 6 goes on to say, If any would draw near to God, if any man would come to God, let him believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If anyone wants to find God, let him seek him, and he will find. Jesus said so. Seek and ye shall find. And the only reason a man never finds God is because he never bothers to seek. If we seek God, we will find. And any man who wants to come to God and discover the reality of God and and grasp the fact of God and experience the person of God simply needs to begin to seek God. Because when he seeks, he shall find. God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He makes himself available step by step unto the man who begins to look. Therefore, he becomes my God. And this is what man was in his innocency. You remember in the 8th Psalm, we read that remarkable statement of David. When I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man, he says, what is man, that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man, that thou visiteth him? And then he answers his own question. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and made him to have dominion over all the works of thy hands. And there you come to the third fact in that name. My God is king. My God is king. Man was given dominion over all the universe, over all the things that God had made. But only as he himself was subject to the dominion of the God who made him. And as he exercised, as he was subject himself to the dominion of God, my God, all that thou art available to me, he began to exercise dominion over all the rest of the world. And as he was subject to dominion, he was given dominion. And you remember when Jesus Christ came, this is exactly the relationship into which he came. The writer of the Hebrews says, we do not yet see all things put under man. He quotes that verse from Psalm 8. We do not yet all see, see, do not yet see all things subject unto him, but we see Jesus made for a little while lower than the angels, that he might taste the suffering, uh, the uh, might taste of death for all men. We see Jesus, and when Jesus Christ came, he came not to act as God, but to act as a man, subject to the dominion of the Father. And as he was subject to the dominion of God, all dominion was given unto him. He said so. All power in heaven and on earth is given unto me. Why? Because he said, I am totally subject to the dominion of my father. And that's the relationship of man. So there is the whole doctrine of man comprehended in that one word. My God is king. The God who is, is my God. And my God is king. That's man in his innocency. And when Adam walked in that relationship, 
all of the universe was subject to his dominion because his God was king. Now, something happened to this man, Elimelech. A tragedy. It isn't always a tragedy, but it is in this case. He got married. And he married a woman whose name was Naomi. And Naomi means pleasure. And in that name, Naomi, you have the entire doctrine of the fall of man. The fall of man. For when Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said to her, Hath God said that thou shalt not eat of the trees of the garden? And in that clever phrasing of that question, he suggested to her that God was denying her that which would bring pleasure to her. And then he dangled the fruit in front of her. And he said, it looks good, doesn't it? I'll tell you something. It tastes better than it looks. And if you'll take of it, you'll find that it will make you wise. And the devil in his cleverness did not lay before Eve a temptation which she, she could obviously see through, but he offered her a very delightful proposition. He suggested to her that if she would take of this fruit, which God, uh, in, uh, in his dominion, in his sovereignty, had uh, forbidden them to take of, as a test of their, of their will, if she would take of that, she would be given the ability to become like God. She would enter into a, a new domain where she could step out into her own independent activity and be God without God. And he offered, her ple- offered man pleasure. And when my God is king, married pleasure, he stepped outside of that reign, that limit that God had placed upon him in order to seek his own pleasure before he sought his own God. And we read in the New Testament of those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is the spirit of the age and has ever been, has been ever since. When Elimelech married Naomi, we have a picture of the fall of man. Now, this couple had two children and their names are very interesting. The names of the children were Malan and Chilion, or that's the Hebrew pronunciation. Perhaps you might prefer to call it Chilion. And these names mean, Malan means sick, and Chilion means pining, pining away. Imagine naming your children that. How would you like to go visit this home and ask to see the boys, Malan and Chilion? Here's little Malan lying in the corner. Sick and pasty-faced, just uh, with a, a, a temperature, always running a constant temperature, hovering between life and death. And a little Chilean over here, nothing but skin and bones, wasting away, pining away. And when these boys grew up, they went into the country of Moab. And while they were there, we read the two boys married, and they married girls who were Moabites. And uh, their names were Ruth and Orpah. Now, Orpah means fawn, a little deer, a young deer. We use the word also in English to mean a, a superficial kind of love, fawning upon someone. Uh, kind of a, su- a surface type of love or attention. Uh, 
And Ruth means beauty. Beauty. And uh, Malin and Killian married Orpha and Ruth. And immediately we're told that Elimelech died. And Malin, Malin died. And Killian died. All three of them died. And this is exactly in line with the, with the picture of scripture where you have the results of the fall. After Adam and Eve were excluded from the Garden of Eden, we read that they had a son. They had, first of all, uh, what's his name? Abel, who was, who was murdered by his brother Cain. And then came Seth. And then we read a long line of uh, the generations of Adam. Adam had a son. His name was Seth. And Seth died. And then Seth had a son whose name was Enos, and Enos died. And Enos had a son, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And all down through that chapter, the knell, the the bell of death rings out again and again. He died, he died, he died. Because when my God is king, marries pleasure, the result is death. And here in the land of Moab, these three men died and left nothing behind but three uh, heartbroken, uh, lonely widows. Now the story really begins there. Begins with these three widows in the land of Moab. And we read, just going hastily through this chapter, we read that Ruth, uh, or Naomi, decided to return to Bethlehem, to her home in Judah. And the two girls started out with her. And both of these girls made a promise to her that they would go with her unto the land. Both of them said that they wanted to go with her. But as they started out along the road, the further they got from Moab, the more they noticed that Orpah kept dropping behind. And they'd look back and encourage her along and say perhaps they were getting a little bit ahead of her. But the further they got away, the more Orpah hung back. And at last Naomi saw that her heart was really not in this that she longed to go back into Moab. And so she kissed her goodbye and sent her back, and she said to Ruth, Do you want to go back also? And Ruth said those wonderful words that I have taken and uh, embedded in in the marriage service that I love to use, to have the bride say to the groom when they're standing at the altar together, Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following after you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And it's interesting, we can't dwell on this, but if you'll take these two girls and study this little scene through, you'll find that here is a beautiful picture of the two kinds of commitment that are made with regard to Jesus Christ. Many, many times you'll find that there are two people who at the very same moment, under the same circumstances, uh, confronted by the same truth, And dealing with the same person will make a commitment for Jesus Christ. But one of them is a soulish commitment. No deeper than that. Not insincere, but only on the surface. An emotional commitment to follow him because their hearts are stirred for the moment. And they're drawn by some superficial uh, view of his person or his glory or something they hope to gain from that. And at the, mo- at the very moment, you can't tell the difference between those two commitments. They both look alike. But as they walk on in the Christian life, one begins to hang back and draw back. 
And at last, like Orpah, they come to the place where they, they, they say, I can't go on any longer. And we read of Orpah that she turned and went back to her own people and her own gods. They never had been any, they never had been anything else. They had always been her own people and her own God. It was only uh, a superficial change that occurred. But Ruth, you see in Ruth that marvelous commitment that says, I am wholly yours, body, soul, and spirit. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. I will die where you die. I'll never go back. And so they come, uh, the two of them together. We read in verse 19, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant, pleasure. Mara means bitter. For the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. And when Elimelech marries pleasure, the result is pleasure is turned into bitterness. When my God is king, turns to marry pleasure, the result is pleasure is turned into bitterness. But they come into Bethlehem. Why did they come there? Because in verse 6 we read, They had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. Where? In Bethlehem. And had given them bread. Bread. Bethlehem means the house of bread. Born in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus said, I am the bread of life. They came to the place where God had visited his people and given them bread. Now, beginning with chapter 2, we find the, the wooing of grace. The bitterness of death in chapter 1, the wooing of grace in chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Boaz means strength, man of strength and a man of wealth. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and gleam among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor or grace. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now when they arrive at Bethlehem, in the bitterness of their widowhood, with no outlook for help or home or hope, the only thing left to them is to take the place of destitution and bankruptcy. And I wonder how Ruth knew what to do when they got there. For she says to her mother-in-law, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain that I might find grace. She's looking for grace. And I'm sure that this means that all along the way, the long, weary road back to Bethlehem. These two women had been talking about what, what they do when they got there. Naomi, uh, Ruth must have said, Naomi, we're both widows. And we don't have any husbands to watch out for us. How are we going to support ourselves when we get there? We're utterly bankrupt. We have no money. We have no property uh, that we can uh, turn into money. What shall we do when we get there? 
And Naomi made, uh, rem- must have reminded Ruth of the provision that the God of Israel had made for the destitute and the bankrupt. You'll find it back in Leviticus, the uh, 19th chapter, uh, the 9th verse. Leviticus 19, verse 9. The law said, when you reap the harvest of your land, then you shall not reap your field to its very border. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God had made provision for the bankrupt. And when Ruth and Naomi arrived in Israel, they took the place of bankruptcy, of destitution. They didn't say to themselves, oh, after all, we've been away, and people will have expected us to have made our fortune in Moab. Perhaps we ought to put up a good show here. Perhaps we ought to get an account down at the store and live on credit for a while and see if we can't act like we're rich and maybe somebody will will take us uh, uh, for granted that we are really rich and maybe we can, we can work some kind of a scheme by which we can work this all out. If they did, they would have faced catastrophe. But they took the place, this is the point, Ruth took the place of destitution and without looking for grace. And remember, Hebrews 11.6 says, if anyone will draw near to God, if anyone looks for the grace of God, let him believe that God is and let him, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If you seek for grace, you will find it. And when Ruth went out looking for grace, that's what she found. Verse 3, she set forth and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, she just happened, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Have you ever discovered the glory of God's happenings in your life? How many times you thought something had happened by accident and you discovered that it was by divine appointment that you were where you were. Think of little Zacchaeus up up in the sycamore tree. And it just happened to be the tree that the Lord Jesus chose to stand under and teach. And little Zacchaeus, round, fat, bald, clinging to the sycamore tree, sitting up on the branch there, uh, looking down and congratulating himself because the Lord was had chosen this tree by accident to uh, stand under and trying to hide away because he, he didn't want anyone to see that in his heart there was behind the facade of business that he had built up, there was a seeking heart trying to look like a sycamore bud up there on the tree. <laughs> and it just happened that the Lord Jesus looked up and saw him up there. And called him by name and told him to come down. Did it just happen? <laughs> he knew him by name. He was there by divine appointment. When he, the woman uh, at the well of Samaria came to the well, she just happened to come at the noontime hour and found him sitting on the well. Just happened by divine appointment. When Nicodemus came at night, he just happened to find the Lord Jesus still up. Uh, maybe he was very surprised to find him. But he didn't realize that the Lord Jesus knew he was coming. And he was waiting for him by divine appointment. And perhaps tonight there's someone who's just happened in here. Just by accident tonight. 
And you didn't realize it, but you're here by divine appointment because God has brought you that you may learn the great truths that are reflected here in the book of Ruth that concern you, seeking after God, that you may find the one who is to be your Boaz, the one who will redeem you. Well, I must hasten on. They came to this, and then we have this wonderful story of boy meets girl, and it never gets old, does it? Ruth was gleaning in the field, and Boaz saw her. And he said to his workmen, who is this maiden? And they told him who she was. And Boaz comes down to meet Ruth. Now, it doesn't tell us how it happened, but if you use your sanctified imaginations, you can see how it happened. (laughs) Must have been a bit awkward at first. She was working away in the field, gleaning away, picking up the grain, the the, uh, stalks of grain here and there. And here stands this handsome fellow, evidently a rich, wealthy man by his clothes. And she drops her eyes and afraid to look up at him, and he doesn't know what to do, and he stands on one foot and shifts back and forth and <clears throat> clears his throat a couple of times and finally says, <clears throat> hello. <laughs> and she looks up and says, hello. <laughs> and then he says to her, <clears throat> listen, my daughter, he says, uh, do not go to glean in the another field or leave this one, but keep close to my maiden." And she's encouraged by this. And uh, he says, uh, let your eyes be upon the field which they are reaping and go after them. I've charged my young men not to bother you. And she wonders what's happening. And uh, she asks him finally, in verse 11 or verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me when I'm a foreigner? And Boaz says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since you since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. I may be a stranger to you, but you're no stranger to me. You wonder how this all happened, but I, I found out about you. And this is the story, the old, old story, isn't it, of of a sinner, a lost and destitute, a guilty sinner, meeting Jesus Christ. We may not, he may be a stranger to us, but we're no stranger to him. And as you trace through this wonderful chapter, you'll find that he tells his men on the side to drop a little grain here and there and increase this uh, bounty that she's gleaning out of the field. And to her amazement, she discovers that These workmen are undoubtedly the sloppiest workmen in the whole kingdom of Israel because they leave huge quantities of grain lying on the ground. (laughs) And when she goes home that night, she's got her apron full and she beats out the grain and she comes in to Naomi with a whole ephah. I don't know how much an ephah is. It's probably a bushel or more of barley. And Naomi greets her and says, where have you been working today? And Ruth says, I gleaned in the field of a man whose name is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. The man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. And the Hebrew words for nearest kin mean literally one who has the right to redeem. One who has the right to redeem. And if you want to see what that means, you look back at uh, at Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter, 
And you'll see what she's referring to. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, it says, If brother, or verse 5, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his brother who is dead, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. In other words, the right of redemption is the right to bring life out of the dead. To give life, to restore life to that which is dead. The right of redemption. And here is one who had the right to redeem. Now, in chapter 3, we get the story of the clearing of the decks. And as you read this through, you discover that Ruth acts in a way that perhaps to us may seem very presumptuous and very unmaidenly. But she's acting quite strictly in accord to the law of Israel. When uh, Boaz lay down by his threshing floor at night, she comes and uncovers his feet and lies at his feet. And when he discovers her there, he asks her who this is, and she identifies herself. And then he says to her in verse 11, uh, may you, verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And in this way she is laying claim to his right to redeem her. It's a perfectly right thing within the law of Israel. And then he says, verse 11, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of worth. And now it is true that I am a near kinsman. That's what she had made clear by this activity on her part. Yet there is a kinsman nearer than I. He says, remain this night and in the morning. If he will do the part of the next of kin for you, well, let him do it. But if he's not willing to do the part of the next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will do the part of the next of kin for you. And he reminds her that there is something that needs to be done before he can act as a redeemer. There is an obstacle that needs to be cleared away first. And if you turn to the opening parts of chapter 4, you'll see what he did. How he demonstrated his, his, uh, his activity and interest in this. And how he removed the obstacle. Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the next of kin, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said... Sit down here. And they sat down as witnesses. Then he said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land which belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. This is the courthouse now assembled. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And can't you see just, can't you just see Ruth and Orpah hiding behind the bush back there, listening to hear what's happening, and wondering what the next result, what, what this man is going to say? I don't know what he looked like. I rather think he had a long gray beard, was probably about 75 years of age, and Ruth was holding her breath, 
Because if this man redeemed the land, he also bought the right to her. And she knew it. And she's waiting to hear what he has to say. And to her chagrin and dismay, the man replies, I will redeem it. And poor Ruth, I don't know how she must have felt, but her heart doubtless sank within her. And then Boaz said, and this was the card that he'd been holding in reserve, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also buying Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the dead, in order to restore the name of the dead to his inheritance. And when the kinsman said, learned that, he said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. And Ruth's heart grew light again. Now, what's this a picture of? Well, you remember in Romans, we're told that the law has been given unto men as a apparent redeemer. That Moses had said, this do and thou shalt live. If you obey this law, these Ten Commandments, then you shall live before our, my God. So that the law has the right, the nearest right, because it's something in, uh, it's inherently involved in mankind as the nearest right of redeeming. But there's one trouble with the law. It can only redeem outwardly, never inwardly. It can only touch those external things of activity, our actions. It can only control our outward affairs, our outward activities. It never touches the motives of the heart. And when the law is faced with the need to change the inner nature of man so that his motives are changed and he wants to do what is right, the law must say, I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. And in Romans 8, we read what the law could not do. In that it was weak in the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, judge the sin in the flesh, that the righteousness which the law demanded might be ours in Jesus Christ. And when this obstacle was removed, Boaz then moves quickly to redeem. And in verse uh, 9 of chapter 4, we read how fully he accomplishes. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, listen, all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and to Malin, all of it. And also Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And when the Lord Jesus left the glory of heaven and came into this earth as our Redeemer, and died upon a cross, he bought all the fallen estate of Adam for every inhabitant of the earth without fail. Every man, woman, and child in this world has already been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bought back all the fallen estate of the sons of Adam, whoever they may be, Malin and Killian and Elimelech, all of them. But where was Orpah in this picture? Ruth 
was ready to enter into all the value of Boaz's activity on her part. And Orpah could have had it too. But because she turned her back and went back to her own people and to her own gods, she's never heard from again. She has no part in the inheritance. Though Boaz is undoubtedly as willing to do for Orpah whatever he did for Ruth, he bought the entire inheritance of her husband as well as Ruth's. But Orpah is lost in this picture because she turned her back and went back to her own people and unto her own God. But as far as Ruth is concerned, we read in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. This boy that is to be born of this union of beauty and strength, of the strength of a, of a redeemer and the beauty of humility is to be a restorer of life. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ, that he takes the dead, the, the things of death in our life and replaces them with, with vitality, with life, a restorer of life. And then we read, Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom like any good grandmother and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And of the Lord Jesus, it is written, he was David's son. So that Ruth is in the one of the forebears of the Lord Jesus Christ. And her name becomes great in Bethlehem, as the prophecy had predicted here by these when their child was born, that he would make her name great. And Obed means worship. Now we have our story complete. When Elimelech, my God is king, married Naomi, pleasure, he fell into the bitterness of death. But when out of that comes Ruth, in the beauty of humility, taking her place as a destitute stranger, dependent upon the grace of Boaz, her, the, the, the strong one, the one of wealth and strength. And he redeems her and buys, him to, uh, buys her to himself and marries her. And when beauty is married to strength, <laughs> the house is filled with worship. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Now turn to Second Ruth, the second book of Ruth. Oh, I forgot. It's not in here, is it? But it's written in many a life because here is a, a woman redeemed by grace. But imagine, just imagine now for this closing moment. What if Ruth, after the boy was born, the little boy was there, gracing the household? What if one morning Ruth would get up and say to her, and say to her husband, Boaz, dear, I'm going out in the field this morning. And she'd take her bundle and go out and, and uh, start out for the fields. And he'd say to her, Ruth, where are you going? And she'd say, well, I'm just going out to get a little breakfast. Try to glean in the fields a little bit. See if I can't pick up a little grain here and there that we might have something to eat for tonight. How do you think he would feel? 
How do you think he would feel if his wife, whom he had redeemed out of bondage and slavery, as a stranger and a foreigner, and taken into his own house and given all that he had, should say to him, now I'm going out and glean in the field like I did when I first came. And yet that's exactly what we do so many times, isn't it? We are married to him who has given us everything. The one risen from the dead, the restorer of life, the one of wealth and of strength, who has given us all our estate. Don't you think Boaz would say to her, Ruth, what's the matter with you? Don't you realize you're my wife? I've given you everything I have. Well, you don't need to glean in the field. You own the whole estate right with me. You can have anything that I have. All that I have is yours. Why do you go out to glean? And don't you suppose that God perhaps looks at us, the Lord Jesus looks at us sometimes with amazement and says, what are you doing? Why do you keep coming to me and asking for the things that you already have? Why do you ask for health and strength and grace and, and joy and peace? I've given you all this. You already have all that I am. And all that I am is all that you need. Why keep coming begging piteously for that which you already have? And I'm sure that if we would begin to walk out upon this mighty transforming truth that God has given to us here in the book of Ruth, that we are now married to him who is risen from the dead, married to him, the man of strength and of wealth, who has given us all that he is and all that he has. And we saw the incredible folly of going out again to piteously glean among the bounty of God for whatever little scratchings we can get. If we saw what we're doing by that, our lives would be transformed. And you know, the ones that we live with at home would be the first ones to see it. And then the ones at work. And then the ones that we encounter in, in the, our ordinary intercourse and daily affairs. And soon everyone would know that something's happened to us, that we've begun to live in the glory and the fullness of our inheritance. Let's bow together. Our Father, what a glorious picture this is. How these truths of Ruth come home to our own heart as we see that we stand in this place, destitute strangers once, gleaning in the... Uh, in the fields of our life, attempting to extract from thy sovereign grace those pitiful sustainings of life that would keep us on. But in thy grace you met us, our mighty kinsman redeemer, bought us to himself, made us his own. Now, Lord, teach us to walk in the light of this, to glory in our inheritance, to no longer be so pitifully uh, poverty-stricken as we've been, but step out in the, into every new day with the assurance that he who is our husband is with us and is able to supply to us all that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.